Take your scriptures, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, tonight we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. But before we uh, turn there, you know, we've been looking at this chapter on love for quite some time. And if you think about it, the love that the scripture lays out for us is really a different kind of love. I, I would even call it sort of an alien love. It's something very strange to us. And if you, if you don't believe me, just think of the conversations that people have about love. You know, oftentimes it sort of revolves around romantic love. I don't care whether it's conversations or maybe you're listening to a song on the radio. Isn't it usually about romantic love? I mean, maybe sometimes it's a love uh, between a, a man and his dog or something like that, I guess. Or, you know, I guess friendship or family or, or something like that. But, you know, rarely is it ever about agape love. You just don't really usually hear people talking about that, you know. In our culture, it seems like increasingly it's consumed with sexuality and about selfishness. And that the world's way of love only knows about how to take things from other people. And, you know, it's really just sort of a sense of self-absorbed satisfaction that begins with me and with my needs. Am I wrong? Is that not usually what we hear? And it, even amongst Christians sometimes, I mean, I, one thing I get to do is I get to go to a lot of funerals and a lot of weddings. And, you know, even at Christian weddings, sometimes you hear people use 1 Corinthians 13 almost like it's this sentimental love. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. You know, these two people are getting ready to start their marriage together and they have no clue what they're doing, you know. Uh, but still, nonetheless, they get married and, you know, they sort of have these stars in their eyes. And that's what, you know, they're sort of looking at in terms of love. But, you know, if if uh, you have been here as we've been going through this series, you see love very differently from God's perspective. You know, love is something that is oftentimes painful you know, that love challenges the, the selfishness of our own hearts and causes us to have to lay down our lives to, to serve other people. And so, you know, God is calling the people out of this world that we've been talking about, a people to come and to be redeemed, a people to come and, and to love. But, you know, as Christians, you know, we have even the residual factors of our own backgrounds, do we not? You know, we have all this baggage, if you would, that we bring us to us in the Christian life. And we have that continual struggle with sin and even the shames of the things that have happened in the past. And so as we come, you know, sometimes we can view the passages like 1 Corinthians 13 as this checklist of stuff that I just need to try harder to do. But I'm here to tell you the good news tonight is you cannot do it. You cannot love the way that God loves. It's impossible. There's just no way to do that in and of ourselves. But the good news is, and this is where we, we need to, to constantly be seeking the help of the Holy Spirit. We need to constantly be coming to the Holy Spirit and asking the Spirit of God to apply His Word, to apply His Word about love to our hearts that we might love one another. Because if the Spirit of God so works in our hearts as He gives us that new life in Christ, we actually are able to love as, as Christ love. And it's only as God is at work in our hearts to transform and to change us that we can ever begin to love 
as Christ's love. And it's very telling, I think, for us to, to think about this passage. And I know when I first started this series, I had us do an exercise, and I know it may seem a little corny, but where you take your name and put it in the place of love, or you take Kirk of the Plains and put it in the place of love. So the, the, ver- the passage of scripture would read like this, um, Kirk of the Plains is patient and kind. Kirk of the Plains does not envy or boast. Kirk of the Plains is not arrogant or rude. Or, or maybe you put your name in there. Rick does not insist on its own, his own way. Rick is not irritable or resentful. Rick does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Rick bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And as you read it that way, you, you begin to, to see, is the Spirit of God working in my heart to bring about those things? Am I looking to the Lord and asking Him to, to do these things? Or am I just tempted to walk in the ways of the flesh? Well, true love is a declaration of selflessness towards other peoples, as opposed to that, that selfishness that begins with me and my needs. It's very different. And, uh, you know, love is something that is for the utterly unworthy, which is good news for you and I, because we come to Christ totally unworthy to receive his love. But as we think about the love that Christ calls us to, to love others with, I appreciated what Leon Morris said. He said, you know, the love that uh, God gives is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love which proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished upon others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. Matter of fact, I would say this, that most people that God calls us to love are probably not worthy to receive our love. Did you hear me? Most people that God calls us to love are probably not worthy, worth receiving our love. And I say that because our temptation, as we'll see here in just a minute, is to say, but wait a minute, they treated me this way. They treated me that way. And it could be so easy for us to use that as an excuse. But he says, he reminds us that they are worthy to, uh, that they are usually not worthy to receive it. It proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from any merit in the beloved. So it's not because of the nature of the person who's receiving that love, but it's because of what comes out of the person who is showing that love. And so I say that because as a church, if we are to reach Andover, if we are to be a faithful witness where God plants us in Andover and the surrounding areas, we must be a church of love. We must love. You know, what does the Bible say? That they will know that you are what? Christians by your love. Okay, and so uh, we need that love. If we don't love as Christ loves, we will be a church that is tempted to drift, a church that is tempted to to maybe uh, do the things of the world rather than the things of Christ. And so let's look at, um, let's just go on in, in terms of love. And what I want us to see tonight is two things. One, love forgives, the first thing. And the second thing is, is that love rejoices with the truth. 
So first of all, love forgives. And I, and I get this from the end of verse 5, where it says love is not irritable or resentful, is what it says in the ESV. Now, the New American Standard says it is not provoked and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Or the NIV, which says it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, love is not one that gets upset with people easily and angered. But you know what? Uh, we have those people in our lives, do we not, that irritate us. We have those people in our lives that it just seems like, you know, all they have to do is walk in the room and we just, oh, we feel sort of irritated. For some reason, they just rub us wrong. It could be a coworker, It could be a family member. It could be a brother or sister. I know I have to confess maybe my own. I don't have to, but I'm going to confess my sin. When I was growing up, I had a brother that I love dearly now. We get along fine. His name's Terry. But uh, yeah, he's listening. <laughs> but uh, Terry and I just like oil and water. We just did not mix. We just clashed heads. And, you know, now I just see we're very different personalities and we think about things very differently. And I see that as a positive thing now. But when you're a little kid, it just was very irritating. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to look at that person who is a difficult person in our lives and to blame them uh, for the impact that they're having upon us. In other words, you know, it's you know, what we say is, well, I wouldn't be angry if this person didn't do and then you can fill in the blank or if they didn't say this or if they didn't always act this way and we sort of fill in that blank and we sort of blame that person. But what's the problem is, is what we don't recognize is that scripture says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so that anger that spews out of our mouth doesn't come because somebody else has done something to us. It comes because our hearts are not full of the love of Christ. And what we don't recognize is, is that we are more irritable and more given to being irritable than what we want to admit. And so, you know, when your brother or sister, you know, does something that, you know, makes you frustrated, it's so easy to say, well, they did this. You know, and, and that's why I'm angry, as if that were an excuse. Well, I, I appreciate uh, Jonathan Edwards. There's an illustration I heard this week where Jonathan Edwards had a daughter who had just an uncontrollable temper. And uh, so there was a young man who came to, to Reverend Edwards and said, you know, I'd like to have your daughter's hand in marriage. And uh, he said, no. And the young man said, uh, oh, Okay, he said, but but I love her and she loves me. And he said, that doesn't make any difference. He said, she isn't worthy of you. And 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 the young man sort of taken back. He said, but but she's a Christian, isn't she? And Jonathan Edwards said, yes. And then I'll quote what he said. He said, but the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. But the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. Now, we might look at that. And we might say, ouch, that's sort of harsh, is it not, to say that about your daughter? But I think what Jonathan Edwards understood is that the presence of selfish anger indicates 
the absence of genuine love. That anger shows that agape love has not yet gripped the heart of that person. And so when the Lord puts those people in our lives that just really get under our skin, it's almost like they're the circumstances that causes pressure on our hearts. And then out of our hearts comes words of anger and frustration and irritation with others to show us that it's not that person's fault. They're just the instrument that the Lord is using. But what we need is that we need the love of Christ to fulfill, to fill our hearts. And, you know, we, we oftentimes could miss that. And I, I say that because, you know, we live in a world that's just increasingly irritable and touchy. Have you noticed that about people in our culture? I mean, you know, driving down the road. You know, it's just like people get really upset. And, you know, if you accidentally don't see someone and you pull over and maybe you cut them off a little short, then they're like honking at you and just like waving their fist or not that I've ever had that happen to me. But, you know, that or um, Facebook, take Facebook. I'm, I, I'm not a big Facebook person. And one of the reasons I'm not a big Facebook person is, you know, you get on Facebook and it's just like people don't have discussions anymore. You know, if there's some issue that's going on on Facebook and people are just like stating their position and, you know, you can't really disagree with people or sort of give an alternate view and try to have a dialogue with them. If you don't agree with them, what do they do? They just get upset with you. I mean, they start saying all kinds of nasty comments on your wall or whatever, or they just unfriend you. But, you know, it's not really like people want to talk. And so it's so easy for us to look at our lives and say, well, at least as a Christian, I'm not like that. And so I'm okay. But Jesus said, love is not irritable. And so often I think that that sense of being irritable has something to do with a sense of rights that we have. That when we think that someone has invaded our turf, uh, that we get defensive. And we think that not only is it that they have caused it, but we have the right to be angry with them. And we see ourselves as being justified in what we do. But let me read Christ's response to those who treated him wrongly. Those who more than just were a difficult person in their life, but people who crucified him, who caused him to suffer. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. As Peter is, uh, you know, talking about the suffering that is going on in the church, he uses Christ as an example and, and just how he suffered. And this is what he wrote in 1 Peter 2, 23. When he, um, that is Christ, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, Christ was set free from responding in like kind to these people who were mistreating him. When someone treats us wrongly, you know, um, we oftentimes get upset with them. And, uh, you know, because one, they owe us something. They, they did something wrong to us. And so we get very upset with them. But Jesus says, 
You don't have to worry about that debt that they owe you. You know, your father who judges justly, he'll set all wrongs right one day. You can entrust yourself to him even now. That wrong does not have to be made right. You actually can respond to that person in love because your father um, will take care of that. So this frees us from that sense of revenge and that sense of anger and allows us to love one another. So we don't have to be so touchy with our wives or, you know, get upset with the person who is driving crazy. You know, we can we can love as uh, Christ works in us through his Holy Spirit. But love also is not resentful. Um, some like I said, some of the other translations say uh, they the ESV says resentful. The New American Standard says does not take into account a wrong suffered. NIV says it keeps no record of wrongs. It's really an accounting term that that he's using here that means to credit to someone's account. So what what it's what he's saying is, is that love doesn't store up uh, the memory of those wrongs that have been done against us. Uh and uh, I, the, the picture I can think of in terms of this whole idea of storing up and this accounting thing of crediting to people's account, I still think of the, the Walt Disney version of um, Charles Dickens' uh, Scrooge, you know, and was it McDuck, I think, that was sitting there and he was just like counting, you know, all the, the money that he had and all the debts that people owed him. And he was writing all those debts in his book so he wouldn't forget so he could collect on every one of those debts. And I think, you know, how often that is like us. That if somebody wrongs us, we have this great uh, storage bank in our minds where it seems like we store all the details of that hurt. You know, that, that sometimes we just like play this video over in our head of the wrong that's been done to us. And, and we, we not only have captured it all in... Uh, you know, uh, for whatever the latest technology in uh, video is, you know, not only have we captured it in perfect color and, and everything, but, you know, we even, when we get to those points when people have wronged us the most, we just sort of slow the video down and we just sort of meditate on what it is that they have done wrong to us. And it just causes within us this sense of anger, this sense of self-righteousness that we've already looked at and says is not part of who we are in Jesus Christ. You know, maybe you've met, you know, people in your life who this is the first time you met them, didn't know them from Adam's house cat. And, you know, you, you meet them and it's not five minutes and they're sharing to you a perfect stranger how somebody has wronged them. And, you know, so-and-so said this, and then this happened, and then they did that. And you're thinking, whoa, this is like TMI, too much information. You know, I, I, I just met you. You know, but there is such bitterness in their hearts because of the wrong that has been done to us. But Paul tells us that where love has invaded our life, where love has invaded a church, it will not be filled with people who love to store up in their memories those things that people have done wrong to them. Now, some people will say, well, you know, you need to forgive and forget. Well, 
you know, I would suggest to you that we usually don't forget as human beings when somebody wrongs us. And I think to say forgive and forget sometimes conveys something that's really not helpful as we're dealing with those wrongs that have been done for us. Now, let me just explain how forgiveness works. That if you think about forgiveness, typically there is something, some wrong that's been done. Let's just say one of you said uh, was gossiping about me as a preacher of the church and you were saying all kinds of wrong things about me and I found out about that and uh, so you know I, I talked to you about that well you know the reality is because you did that thing that was wrong because you spoke those uh, evil words God says that's wrong there's a debt that is owed to me right do you follow me you said something wrong there's a debt that is owed to me. But and our temptation is then to take that debt and to make sure that we collect on that. We all turn into bank collectors, you know, when it comes to the sins that other people commit against us. But what Jesus says is forgiveness is saying, you know what? What you said was wrong. It violated the law of God. And because of that, there's a debt that's owed, right? Yes, right. Okay. Forgiveness says you know what? Then I will pay that debt. I will cover the costs. Even though you said the words and you said it about me, I'm going to release you from that debt and it's been taken care of because I'm going to pay that debt. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did upon the cross for us is that we committed the sin against him and he didn't just say, oh, forget about it. It's no big deal. There's a debt, and that debt has to be paid, and he paid that debt in giving down and giving his life for us. And he calls us to do the same with other people, that we all, we are to release them from that debt. And so what happens is, is that when somebody in the community comes to me and said, Pastor Rick, you know what I heard? I heard that someone in your congregation said this about you. And I'd say, yeah, I know about that. Now, did I forget that that happened? Nope. That's where I said, I don't think this whole idea of, well, forgive and forget, you know, is really helpful because we do remember the things that are done. But I can say to that person, you know, yeah, I know that that happened, but you know what? It's okay. It's already been taken care of. That's already been actually paid for. And it's actually not an issue anymore. It's all gone. There's no debt. And so we can, we can uh, bear witness to how... God frees us to be able to forgive one another. Love is not resentful. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs because love forgives. Love releases other people from the wrong that they have done. Now you say, how can we do that when people treat us so poorly? But listen to the words of Romans 4, Romans 4, 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds... Are forgiven. Do you ever think about your deeds in that way? Do you ever think about the fact that you are a lawless person? I'm a lawless person. You know, don't we usually talk about, well, you know, I made a mistake or, OK, so I shouldn't have done that. We want to sort of lighten our offense against God. But the reality is the offense that we have with God has a debt attached to it. It's a lawless deed. And he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Did you hear that? Jesus says that there is not even the remotest possibility that our sins will be held against us. Now, I don't know about you, but that is good news for me. If you knew my life, if you knew the way I lived, you would re- you'd be like me. You'd be rejoicing that God doesn't hold that against me. I don't have to worry and to think that when I get to heaven, you know, Jesus is going to pull out that video and he's going to show everybody all the different numerous ways that I have sinned against him and all the debt that I owed him. He's not going to do that because those sins have been forgiven. Listen to the words of Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 14. I know you've heard this, but brothers and sisters, just dwell on this. Just think about this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. Nowhere in this passage does it suggest that our sins are not real. And nowhere does it suggest that our debt is not real. All of that is very real. But what we do see is that God has forgiven us. So when people sin against us, we must remember that we have been treated with such a wonderful and an amazing grace uh, that we can do nothing but forgive them. And love compels us to do that as we think about the love of Christ. So forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean we forget the offense, but it does mean that while we remember the offense, you also remember that the debt has been paid and it's a non-issue. There's nothing left to talk about or to consider, you know, as people want to bring up these things. So we don't store the offense in our memory because we have been forgiven. I guess you could say, brothers and sisters, you know what the you know what the grace of Jesus Christ does? He wipes our hard drives free. He 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 wipes them clean. Okay? He wipes them clean. He said, all those things that you wanted to store up against each other, all those things that you wanted to keep track of, well, you know what? I have forgiven you, and likewise you should forgive one another. And he wipes our hard drive clean. And he gives us the freedom instead to treat that person not as they deserve, but as we have been treated with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay, very quickly, moving on, let's just look at love rejoices with the truth. First of all, we see that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing in verse 6. Now, we might look at that and we'll go, well, duh, of course love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. God doesn't delight in sin and in evil. And that, and so our temptation might be to say, you know, let's just skip over that, okay? Now let's go on to the next part. But the reality is we need to be challenged in this because there's oftentimes a perverse part of humanity that is intrigued and maybe I would even say enjoys that which is wrong and even that which is evil. I mean, think about it. Reality TV shows. Now, I know they're not all created equal, but and, and I'm not a big uh, fan of reality TV shows. But the little bit that I have seen, uh, you know, people, uh, their shortcomings are sort of exploited 
You know, the, it's like the reality TV shows are pinning one person against another person, right? You're trying to get somebody off of an island or out of a house or, you know, somewhere. And so it's just focusing in on people's sins and their shortcomings and, you know, humiliating people. And we do all of that for what? Entertainment. Right? We turn that on and we watch that. And, and we even take delight in that. I told my wife the other day, and, and I'm a firm believer in this. I said, you know, we, we sort of listen to how people of old used to go to the Colosseum and watch Christians get killed. You know, and we hear that and we're thinking, really? You guys did that for fun? I can't believe you would do that. That is just like sick. But I said, you know, sometimes I think these TV reality shows just aren't much different. You know, there's just not blood is the only difference. But as far as people being destroyed and just decimated, it's the same thing for the most part. Or, or even the evening news, you know. How many times have you heard something like, teacher abuses students, more news at 11. And, you know, what do we want to do? Hmm, I wonder what that's about, you know. And we want to watch the news at 11 to hear what the details are about. There's just something in us. Even, even gossip in the church you know, people will say something about someone else that, you know, share a sin that they've done, you know, and we're just like, really? You know, well, tell me about it. I mean, the only reason I want to know is I want to pray for them, you know. So just tell me so I can pray for them, you know. But we want to know those things that, that are wrong in other people's lives. And all that is is a temptation to be delighting in that which is wrong or that which is evil, which goes against what love is. But love cannot rejoice in evil or wrongdoing. As love characterizes our church, we will not only be able to rejoice, we will not be able to rejoice or have joy when evil is exalted. Instead, we see that love rejoices in the truth. Listen to the words of Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. But too often we as Christians have a temptation to delight in those things which are not good. I had... Uh, uh, um, a fellow preacher one time give a sermon, probably one of the best uh, talks that I'd ever heard. And his premise was basically, if you don't want to have discipline cases in your church, then make discipline a normal part of your church's life. And I thought, wow, that's really intriguing. But what, what he was saying is, is that you need to deal with the sins and the shortcomings of a church on a regular basis, sort of like you do with your kids. You know, if you don't discipline your kids, what's going to happen? They're probably going to grow up to be hellions, you know? Forgive me, but that's, you know, they're going to be really bad. And if we don't deal with it then, and in many ways, it's the same way in the church. And we have to be careful. We have to be praying for one another. And that's one of the ways. I think we think of discipline only in terms of excommunication and just, you know, get the person out of the church. But there is so much more in terms of discipline. Uh, church discipline and it starts with just exhortation just encouraging one another brother sister be careful look at your lifestyle you see what you're doing there's danger there you know 
and, and praying for that person and loving that person and being careful with that person, you know, to, to encourage them towards the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be careful that we don't rejoice in that which's wrong. But instead, it says in verse six, that love rejoices with the truth. I think this is pretty self-explanatory. Love is glad when truth prevails. That's just all there is to it. And I know that in our culture, there seems to be a dichotomy between love and between truth. You know, I, I hear Christians and it's just like to me, it's like fingers on a chalkboard whenever I hear Christians say, well, you know, we just got to be careful not to talk about all this theology stuff and all, you know, this Bible doctrine and stuff. And instead, what? We need to love these people. And it's like, whoa, you just drew a line there that God doesn't draw. You know, we in some churches, we see love is one side and truth is the other. But Paul says here that love rejoices in the truth. And so, kids, I'll tell you, if you ever have a friend who says to you, hey, you want to go do this? Hey, let's go steal the neighbor's apples. OK, that'd be great. You know, and if you really like me as your friend, you'll go do this with me. Well, you know what? Is that love? Does that person really love you if they ask you to go do something that goes against what the scriptures say? No, not at all. Or maybe young ladies, a young man says to you, if you love me, you'll be with me in this way. That man doesn't love you. He could care less about you. He only cares about himself. Because love rejoices with the truth. And so as Christians, we need to, to rejoice in that. Now, I do want to read one passage for you, if you would. Just turn to 2 John chapter 1. Well, or just 2 John. John's second letter to the church. Beginning of verse 4. John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And notice what he says in verse 6. Pay particular careful attention to this. He goes, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So what is love? That we walk according to his commandments. So when it says that love rejoices in the truth, we have to be careful not to think that what that means only is that love delights in what God's word says or that uh, love loves to talk about the intricacies of theology or the word of God. Are those things good? Yes. Those things are wonderful. And I hope that we do that a lot in this church. OK, but it's not just that. It is obeying the commandments of God. And so we must not only know God's word, we must live God's word. 
It is is something that when we see that lived out in the word, just like what James says, you must not just be hearers of the word, but doers only. And if we love others, we will be compelled not only to value and appreciate and treasure the word of God and spend time reading this, but it's going to be a sense of doing this as well in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be taking the word of God and being in the word every day and praying and saying, dear God, make this a reality in my life. Lord, you know that I'm reading this in your word and I'm just scared to death to do this. Please give me strength that I could obey your commands and that I could do what you want me to do. Lord, help me to talk to my neighbor. I, I just, you know, I can, I can just tell that you're wanting me to go talk to my neighbor and would you give me the strength to tell them about Jesus Christ? You know, it's that sense of, of walking in obedience to the Lord. And so, you know, how are we doing as a church? Is Kirk of the Plains not irritable? In other words, are we not touchy or easily angered? Is Kirk of the Plains not resentful? It doesn't keep track of the wrongs that have been done to to it. Instead, Kirk of the Plains deals with those wrongs. It's done, it's dealt with, and it's gone because we've forgiven. Kirk of the Plains doesn't take joy in wrongdoing. Kirk of the Plains doesn't gossip and delight in passing around the sins of others. But Kirk of the Plains rejoices in the truth, rejoices, has great joy in obeying the commands of God and doing what he says to his glory. Oh, may the Lord make us that church. Amen? Amen. Let's take just a moment and just sort of meditate on the word that we've just heard. Just bow your heads if you would. Let's just meditate upon this and then we'll close in prayer in just a minute. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you have given us your word and we know that the things that we read tonight are are not things that we can do ourselves. Lord, we probably can think of more ways in which we have violated your word than we have obeyed it. But we come to you tonight, though rejoicing that your love is different and that you have promised God to Uh, that we could have this love through the Lord Jesus Christ. We just pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to cause us to love others with Christian love, not not just a a love of this world, not just a, a good moral love, but a righteous love, an agape love that comes only from you. And I pray, dear God, that as a church that we would exhibit this love that people would, would see that and comment, you know, not, not to our praise and glory. Oh, Lord, no, may that never be, but to your praise and glory. And may there even be many people that would come to faith in Jesus Christ because of what they see here at Kirk of the Plains. And Lord, we know that for that to happen, it would only come from you. And we thank you for this. And we pray, Lord, for our families 
that you would instill in our hearts, Lord, instill in the hearts of our kids uh, to love one another. We thank you and we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.